okay, I know of this uh, man, and he has a family. And uh, for him, his family was the main thing in life. That was the really important thing in his life. That was the main thing in his life. But uh, in order to uh, look after his family, he took a job. And over time, uh, he became very successful in his job. He became very, very, uh, uh, you know, uh, very wrapped up in his work. And over time, he began to neglect his family. And uh, over time, uh, things became very strained with his wife, and uh, he wasn't a good father to his children. What had happened was, uh, the family was the main thing, and he'd taken on this job to look after the main thing. But after a while, the job became the main thing, and he forgot that the family was the main thing. And as a result, he had nothing in the end. I think that uh, that sort of reminded me of how it's so important in life to keep the main thing uh, the main thing, right? To keep the main thing the main thing. Because it's so easy to forget what the main thing is and to be distracted uh, by other things, things which are not the main things. And this can happen to us in our personal life, our marriage life, our family life, our working life, our study life. One day we wake up and we ask ourselves, what are we doing all this time? Because we've forgotten what the main thing is. Now, I think that today as we look at God's Word, uh, the answer to this question is here. What should be the main thing in life? What should be the main thing that we should be focused on? Now, today's Word is full of really deep and profound things, life-changing and life-transforming truths. But it's not easy to get at. All right? In order to get at the truths that we're looking at today, we need to dig deep and we need to work hard at the passage. We need to look at the text and really apply our minds. It's not one of those sermons and one of those passages where you just sit back and you, you, know, you sort of like uh, easily get out what the Bible is saying. It's something that the more you put into it, the more you get out of it. And I hope that uh, today as we look at this word that God has given us, you put in that effort and be able to get what God is really saying to us. Now it begins in uh, chapter 6, verse 1, where it says, Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Now, um, what this is referring to is that uh, Jesus, if you look up on this map, uh, crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now, the far shore is always seen in reference to where the Jewish side is, and the Jewish side is always on the uh, which side is that? The west side. Okay, so the far shore for them would be on the side that I've circled for you, uh, the side which is closer to Bethsaida. But a large crowd of people followed him across the lake. Now, I want you to pay attention to this section because everything that's written here has a purpose, right? It says here in verse 2 that a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Now, Jesus, we had seen over the last few weeks and last few chapters, had performed many miraculous signs. He had turned water into wine. He had done many things. But here, this crowd of people specifically followed him because of the miracles that he performed on the sick. Now, last week in chapter 5, we saw that Jesus had performed a great, a great sign, a great miracle in Jerusalem, which was far, far north, much further north. You can't even see it in the map that I printed for you, right? And he had healed a man who was paralyzed for 38 years. But maybe the news of Jesus had spread to other people up to the north 
Or maybe he had healed other people and we don't know about it. Or maybe in chapter 4, the same crowd who had seen Jesus heal the official son heard that Jesus was now back in the region and they wanted to follow Jesus because they'd seen him do other signs. Okay, So in uh, chapter 4, remember we read of how Jesus had healed uh, the official son in Capernaum who was sick. Okay, now Capernaum, if you, if you go back to the earlier side, was on this side of the lake. Can you see Capernaum? Right? But whatever it is, whoever the crowd was, whether they came from Jerusalem, whether they came from Galilee, is quite irrelevant. But the important thing to remember is they're following Jesus because of the miracles concerning the healing of the sick. In the next verse, it tells us that then Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. Again, for us, it's like kind of insignificant, right? It's like, okay, this is not really the most important thing. We can skip over this verse. But actually, again, it's, it's something really important and we have to come back to it later. But the Jewish Passover feast was the most significant festival of the Jews. It was like their national day, okay? It's like we have national day. But except for the Jews, it wasn't a national day. It was a national week. Okay, so you know, we only have one day holiday. They have seven for their national day or national week. But it wasn't just a, a celebrating of a separation from Malaysia and Singapore. It was actually a celebration of God's supernatural intervention to free Israel from slavery to Egypt. It was the remembrance of a foundation of a nation, not because of an act of man, but the will and power of God. Okay, now those two things are important. Okay, we'll get back to that. They were following Jesus because of his miraculous healing. And also the time was the Passover. It was a national celebration week for the Jewish people. And because of that, this huge crowd of people found themselves with Jesus on the other side of the lake. In verse 5, Jesus looked up and he saw the great crowd coming towards him. And he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Among those of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up, Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? So here Jesus is with his disciples and uh, they're on the far side of the lake and it's quite deserted, it's quite isolated. And the sun is setting, nightfall is coming. And he asked Philip a serious question. How are we going to feed all these people? And uh, well, in those days, there was no kafu, no uh, giant supermarket. But even so, even if there was a giant or a kafu, Philip asked a very uh, simple question. Where are we going to get enough money to feed all these people? And actually, if you look at the, the passage, it says that uh, it would take more than a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Now, if you look at the footnote, uh, for those of you who have uh, your Bibles, there should be a footnote at the bottom, or if you have your iPads or whatever. Actually, it doesn't say um, more than half a year's wages, right? It actually says 200 denarii. Now, in those days, uh, uh, a wa- the wage for a working person would probably be a one denarii or denarii for one person. Okay, and each person, the laborer, would normally earn that one denarii, and he would go home, and with that money, would be enough to feed his family. Maybe a family of four minimum. You know, not, but those days had big families, maybe six, seven, eight. And for two hundred denarii, basically, 
It's saying that you could feed a family of four or six people for 200 days and not just breakfast, but breakfast, lunch and dinner. So here we're talking about a huge amount of food for 200 denarii, right? But this crowd is so huge and so big that Philip says that even if we had 200 denarii, it wouldn't be enough for each person in the crowd to have one bite. Now just imagine how huge that crowd must have been that not even 200 denarii would be enough for each person to have a bite. But then, we read here in verse 8 that this guy called Andrew, okay, my, uh, my name, <laughs> spoke up. And he says, here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? So this guy, Andrew, my namesake, must have been like the Gurmit Singh of the ancient world, right? Or the Mr. Bean, right? Because if 200 denarii will not have enough for one bite for the crowd, then what is the, the small afternoon tea of a small boy going to do? Because it's just five small barley loaves and two small fish. And I think that as we read this part, we're meant to realize the impossibility of feeding such a large crowd because uh, from a human point of view, logistically, they are not going to be able to get enough food because they're in an isolated place. Accounting-wise, they don't have enough money and production-wise, they don't have enough resources. They only have two small fish and five loaves. But as we look at this passage, Jesus was only testing his disciples because from a worldly human perspective, it was impossible to feed this crowd. But who was Jesus? Jesus was the person who turned water into wine. Theoretically, Philip and Andrew should have seen the signs and understood the signs before and realized that Jesus would be able to do the humanly impossible to feed this crowd. And that's what happens next. Because in verse 10 onwards, it says, Jesus told the people to sit down. And there was plenty of grass in that place and they sat down. And there were about 5,000 Men there, okay, this is very important, the men part, we're going to get back to that. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed it to those who were seated as much as they wanted, and he did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that were left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Now, surely here was something really miraculous, right? Because it says here that Jesus uh, divided the people and they counted uh, only the people that mattered to them that time, the men, and there were 5,000 of them. But I'm sure that it wasn't just a men-only crowd, right? Uh, there were women there, there were children there. Many estimates say that the number of people there could have been as many as more than 20,000 people with the men and children, uh, the ch- women and children. And that's why we understand that the 200 denarii would not be enough for each person to have one mouthful. But look at what Jesus does. He takes the five barley loaves and the two small fish. And the people, it says here, they all ate. And they all had enough to eat. Not that they all ate, but they all had enough to eat. And not only that they have all had enough to eat, but there was food left over. And not only was there food left over, there were 12 baskets full of loaves left over. Now that's quite amazing, right? Because the five small small barley loaves and the two small fish would not even make up one 
basket. And now we have 12 baskets left. Now, this was obviously a miracle of the highest order, the, of, the, of the first degree, right? But if the crowd could see what was happening, they had a very hard time understanding what was happening. Like one uh, preacher was said before, I remember, he said the food was good, the miracle was good, but the understanding was not good, was very poor. And after this great miracle, there was a series of errors, of mistakes, of misunderstandings that the crowd experienced. The first error came straight after in verse 14 to 15. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, he began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. But Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Now, what did the people want? Now remember again the background, right? What we read in the beginning, which we thought maybe is kind of unimportant. That this was the national week, national celebration. It was like their national day for the Jewish people. And this national day was an independence day. They remembered Moses rescuing the people. Actually, it's not really Moses, but it was God working through Moses to rescue the people out of Egypt into their land. And what did Moses do when he rescued the people into and he brought them out of Egypt and they were wandering in the desert. Well, God used Moses and part of using Moses was that he led them out, out of slavery in Egypt. So I guess the logical thing would be for the people who were celebrating this great national day, the national week, would be to remember that event and to remember that, well, Moses did this. Well, Jesus, Jesus is like the one like Moses, and he will do the same thing and he will rescue us out of the slavery from the Romans. And that's why it says there, he says, surely this is the prophet who is coming into the world. Now, it doesn't say this is a prophet who is coming into the world, not just any old prophet. This is the prophet. Now, the prophet was the prophet that Moses had prophesied about. So, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, um, Moses had pro- said that the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. Okay, so this guy that Moses predicted would be just like him and he would, he would be in the mold of Moses but probably greater and they expected that Jesus would be this Moses prophet character. Some military, political, powerful human king who would free them from the slavery of the Romans. And already, I guess that's why maybe some people say it's important that we were told that there were 5,000 men there. Because here were 5,000 men who were willing to take up arms and follow Jesus and to free the Israelites from the oppression of the Romans. But the problem was that they were blinded, right? They misunderstood Jesus because they were looking only to Jesus for a short-term solution. That's all they were looking for in Jesus. They're looking to Jesus as a short-term solution to their immediate problem, which is the problem of Roman occupation. But Jesus was so much more than just a short-term, immediate solution to their short-term problem. Uh, in Psalm chapter 2, Jesus is a king. Yes, definitely a king, but not just a king to save them from the Romans, but the king over the world. Right? So in Psalm chapter 2, 
God promises that this Christ will make the nations, he will make this, uh, the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. So what Jesus was, was not a, a short-term and temporary solution to their short-term temporary problem. The problem of Roman occupation, paying taxes and uh, national humiliation. But he was actually the Christ, a much greater, greater figure than they could actually capture in their minds. Now I think that as we just look at this short two verses, we can, we can relate to that ourselves, I think. Because sometimes we see Jesus as smaller than he really is. We try to see Jesus as a solution to our short-term, temporary, immediate problem. But we fail to see him for who he really is. So I remember last time when the prayer of Jabez was a you know, very popular prayer where you could pray for 30 days, the prayer of Jabez, and God would expand your wealth or expand your, your land or your career. And I remember many people used to buy the book and pray the prayer. But I was thinking to myself, isn't Jesus much bigger than just praying for your wealth or your career? Isn't that a very short-term, immediate problem? That, 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 and that's all you're turning to Jesus for? Because Jesus is so much more than just your career or your wealth or your health. The Bible tells us that Jesus is much, much greater than that. Well, because of that, Jesus... Because they underestimated him, they misunderstood him, he withdrew by himself to the mountain. Now we're going to skip the part about uh, his walking in water, but we're going to go straight on to the next part in verse 25, where after Jesus uh, walks on water and he goes back to Capernaum, back to the other side of the lake, after a, a big roundabout and, and, and a lot of under, um, uh, chasing and running after him, they finally find Jesus. But look at what happens when they get to Jesus in verse 25 in Capernaum. When they found Jesus on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you for on him. God the Father has put his seal of approval. Now here is the second error, the deadly fatal error of the crowd. When they see Jesus, they find Jesus. And what are they are looking for from Jesus? They are looking for the food. They are looking for the feeding miracles. Remember earlier on, why did the crowd chase after Jesus? Why were they following this, this great crowd of 20,000, 30,000 people? Why were they going after Jesus? They were going to him for the feeding miracles, remember? Not the feeding miracles, the healing miracles. The healing miracles, right? But now why are they chasing after Jesus? Because of the feeding miracles. So they're just chasing after Jesus because of all these short-term material things or physical things that they can get food, and healing. But notice both times Jesus says that these miracles, what are they? Well, in verse 2, they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. And here, in verse 26, very truly you're looking for me because you saw the signs, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate your fill and were full. Now what this means is that 
The miracles that Jesus does are not the things that we chase after, but the miracles that Jesus does are the things that point as signs to who Jesus is. So we're not meant to chase after the signs, but we're meant to interpret and understand the signs and follow Jesus. But they were only interested in the signs themselves. You see, it's really ridiculous, right? Because imagine if... um, if you see a sign, okay, imagine a tourist comes to Singapore and he sees this great sign which says uh, Botanical Gardens or something, or, 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 or more likely Marina Bay Sands Casino or something, right? I don't know, okay? And, and you see this great sign, and the sign is very attractive, there's nice lettering, it's very, uh, there's a lot of artist, uh, artist, artistry gone into it, there are brilliant colors as well lit. But instead of going to where the sign is pointing, you, you, you stand in front of the sign, you take a photograph, and you, you, know, you, 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 you go home. And you never go to where the sign is pointing. So you never went to the botanical gardens, you just stood in front of the sign. You never went to the esplanade, you just stood in front of the sign. You just took these photographs of signs everywhere. Now that's pretty silly, right? Because the sign itself is not what you're supposed to be attracted to. You're, the sign is to point you to what you're supposed to be attracted to. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying the healings, the food and the bread, they were never meant to be the things that the people were meant to chase after to follow Jesus for, but they were meant for them to understand who Jesus was all along. But the problem was that they had a fatal temptation, a fatal uh, misunderstanding and attraction of Jesus because they wanted to work for food that was temporary and spoiled. See, that's what it says there, right? Do not work for food that spoils. Now, the word here, work, is not literally that you know they, they can work for these things because obviously the food and everything comes from Jesus. But the idea of work here, as I was uh, looking up my 1976 Oxford Dictionary, primary school edition, says that work is to strive or to have a purpose or to focus towards something. So the focus of their life was for the food that spoils, and that's why they kept chasing after Jesus. The healing, the food, the loaves. And instead of following to get the food that does not spoil, they would rather choose the food that spoils instead. Now, we read before Isaiah 55, uh, where we did the uh, responsive reading with why. I think it's up here, right? And God actually says that Jesus is bringing something that he himself wants the people to come up to. That there is a futility in, in, in coming to God just to buy food and water and bread, which does not satisfy. Right? Imagine you go to God, you go to Jesus, and he's offering you food for eternal life. And all you want is bread that expires after a week. I mean, why would you want to go and get something of such such temporary value instead of the eternal value? But that's what Jesus is offering, isn't it? Jesus is offering food for eternal life. But the people instead would rather come to Jesus for the food that spoils. Now, I wonder whether that is a lesson for us. 
when we come to Jesus, do we come to Jesus more interested in the food that spoils, in the things that pass away, in the things that will not be here? Or are we more interested in coming to Jesus for the food that endures for eternal life? Are we making the same mistakes as that great crowd who comes to Jesus and thinks, okay, all I want from you, Jesus, is a good career, health, good relationships, do well in my exams, but actually the eternal life stuff, I don't really need that. Because that's such a foolish, foolish thing. Such a tragedy. Now part of the reason why they uh, uh, so misunderstand Jesus comes, and this I think in verse 28 to 29 is the most tragic part of their misunderstanding. Because in verse 28, then the crowd asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires of us? And Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. He said to them, Very truly I tell you, it was not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven, that gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, but still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, but I will raise them, and I will raise them up at that last day. See, part of the reason for their failure to follow Jesus and to understand the signs is that the crowd believes that they can work for eternal life. They ask Jesus, what are the things that we need to do to get eternal life? What do we need to work in order to get eternal life? But they fail to understand the sign, you see. And I think this is where we really have to understand and concentrate because this is not easy for us to understand. It's just like what Isaiah says, you know, God's thoughts are far away from our thoughts. And this is one of the clear signs of it. They saw that Jesus gave the bread. They knew that Moses was given the bread by God, this manna. But they thought that they could work for eternal life. Can you see the contradiction there? Can you see how it doesn't make sense? If God is the one who gives the bread, if God is the one who gives the manna, why do we think that we can actually work for eternal life? Jesus says that actually the giving of eternal life is like the bread and the manna. It is a gift from God. And to get that gift is to believe in Jesus. Now, I think that this is the heart of Christianity. What is the 
You know, I think a lot of people today are very uh, confused about what Christianity is all about, and, and, I, and I won't name names because, uh, I, I, you know, but I was reading somewhere, uh, actually it's okay, I don't think he'll sue me, about, um, about the president of America, right? And uh, there was some quote about how his under, understanding of Christianity is uh, to have a faith as an experience, a faith as a journey, right? But actually, what is real faith? Real faith is not a journey. Real faith is not an experience. Faith is not wishful thinking. But Christianity is faith in an object, faith in Jesus Christ. Believing in Jesus Christ for eternal life. For eternal life. Um, maybe I shouldn't use President of America too much. But anyway, I was reading this article so it can be quite helpful. But he was saying that he is, he is not an expert in what happens after you die. But yet he calls himself a Christian. And I think that is a contradiction, right? If, if you cannot know what happens after you die, then you cannot call yourself a Christian. Because Jesus says very clearly, believe in me for eternal life. It is faith in an object, belief in Jesus. Well, the crowd understands what Jesus is talking about. Because the crowd finds Jesus offensive. They really believe that they can do the work for eternal life. I have a relative of mine and uh, for many years she said, oh, it was too easy to become a Christian. You know, it's too easy. I just believe in Jesus. I, I'm forgiven. I have eternal life. You know, I, uh, it's too easy. Lah, right? I, I can do all these things and I can get eternal life myself. You know, I, why do I need to believe in Jesus? And I think that's the same attitude as the crowd, right? They believe and they have a pride in themselves that I can work for eternal life. Why do I need to believe in Jesus? And therefore they say to Jesus, what signs, what greater signs will you do to make us believe in you? Now, what an irony this is. They didn't need any signs before to make Jesus king to make him become king and freedom from the Romans. They didn't need any more signs when they came all the way across the, river, uh, the, the sea back and forth to eat the bread and to get healed. But they needed more signs to believe in Jesus for eternal life. But what more signs do they need? So Jesus goes on to say to them, right, very, very clearly, that Jesus is the bread, that actually the manna in the desert, which for the Jews was such a great and important thing, for Moses, for whom they esteemed as the forefather of their nation. Well, these things just pointed forward to Jesus and what Jesus was doing. That Jesus feeding them in the desert was a sign that he was the true bread from heaven. You see, if you look from um, in verses uh, 35 to verse 30, 40, right? Uh, you can actually spend the whole day thinking about it because they're all very deep and profound. But Jesus keeps repeating over and over again about the inability of themselves to work for eternal life and the great importance and imperative to believe in Jesus. 
And he uses every metaphorical visual image that he can grasp in order to get them to see that they need to come to Jesus. So first up, he says, look, you must believe in me and you will never be thirsty. In verse 35, you must come to me, you will never be hungry. In verse 40, if you look to the Son, you have eternal life. If you believe in the Son, you have eternal life. If you believe in the Son, you'll be raised up on the last day. See, you cannot work for eternal life. It is only received as a gift from the Father and it's an everlasting, free, unique and invaluable gift. Now, why does the crowd reject Jesus? Why will they not accept this gift? Why is it there are people perhaps even sitting here today or your friends or your family or the people that you met during Chinese New Year, why is it they are not willing to just hold up their hand to receive the gift of eternal life? Well, I guess part of the reason could be because they are very focused only on the here and now, isn't it? They only want what Jesus can do for me tomorrow. Get me that promotion, get me that raise, get me that house, uh, or what, what I was saying, you know, get a new car. But they're not interested in what Jesus is offering, eternal life. For them, they think they can work towards eternal life. Maybe they feel that they already have eternal life. But that is a tragic, tragic misunderstanding of the truth. That you cannot work towards eternal life. You cannot have eternal life on your own terms. It only comes to you as a gift. But if I were to tell you that that was the main reason, or the actually that it is the right reason, that the, they rejected reason, uh, Jesus, then it will be wrong. Right? That's not what the Bible is saying. Because Jesus says a very offensive thing in verse 36 to verse 39. Right? If we took that out, I guess it would be much more acceptable, but if we Read as it is, it is really offensive, especially for those who do not believe. Jesus says, but as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. And why don't they believe? All those the Father gives me will come to me. But whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I'll raise them up at the last day. Now, I think that if uh, you went to tell that to your non-Christian family member, your friend, and explain it as it is really meant to be explained, that is a truly offensive thing. To this world. Because what you will say to people is, you do not believe, not because you have freely chosen not to believe, but because God has failed to choose you and draw you to Jesus. See, look at uh, verse 37, right? Verse 37 seems to suggest that, uh, you know, there's sort of like uh, both parts to it, right? All those that the Father gives to me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Well, what Jesus is really saying here is, God brings people to me, brings them into my kingdom, and once they are my kingdom, I will keep them safe, and they will never be cast out of that kingdom. Now, what that is really saying is that 
there is not even 1% of my responsibility or I can claim for my own self involved in my own salvation. God gives Jesus. God gives eternal life. God gives even me coming to Jesus. Now obviously this brings up all sorts of questions about free will and predestination and everything else, but I don't think Jesus feels very uncomfortable about those questions here. But what he's trying to say is that ultimately salvation is all of God's work and is none of our own work. He's trying to push them to, to really understand that you cannot work for eternal life. Even the decision to come to Jesus is not our own. That There is no work for us to be involved in, but it's God's work in us. Now, I think that as we look at this passage, it is very, very deep and profound. Right? It's like a... It's like Chinese New Year, I think, you know, you know, you just eat too much after a while, you get a lot of indigestion. It's a bit like that, right? You know, because it's almost as if like you ate three meals and one meal sort of thing, right? But I think that if you actually reflect and, and even just think about what Jesus is saying, you'll see that that what Jesus is saying is so important for us to grasp and understand our heart. Because it's so easy, I think, in this life to be distracted by the trivial things, the unimportant things. Think about all the things that you chase after. Think about all the things that you've been thinking about the last few weeks or months or days. How many of those things will spoil and waste away and pass away? But the things which are really important, the things that you need to keep as the main thing, Jesus speaks about here. Eternal life. To be right with God in heaven. These are the things that last for eternity and these are the things that Jesus brings. And I think that it's such a great privilege because if we have found ourselves in Jesus, if we have that eternal life, it is not because we can claim that we are smarter than other people. We can claim that we have more insight than other people, that somehow, you know, uh, I could uh, apply myself better to understanding the Bible. But the glory is God's. God chose you to come to Jesus. God chose you and Jesus keeps you. So continue to keep the main thing, the main thing. Do not be distracted by the trivial things of this world which will spoil and pass away. But believe in Jesus. Not faith as a journey. Not faith as an experience. But faith in an object in Jesus Christ. And know and really rejoice that in Jesus Christ you have eternal life. He is the true bread of heaven. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, We thank you for your word. We thank you for the words of Jesus. The words which speak so powerfully into our reality. The reality of the short term, the reality of the trivial, the reality of the things that spoil. Help us to heed the words of Jesus. Heed your word. 
and to see that what really matters in this life are the things which last for eternity. And those things we cannot work for, those things we cannot strive for, those things are a gift from you. You gave Jesus as the true bread of heaven that whoever eats of him, whoever comes to him, whoever looks to him, whoever believes in him, will have eternal life, food that endures forever. Help us all the more, dear Father, to believe in Jesus, to look to him and to come to him, to never leave him and to know the great power by which he keeps us. We thank you today, for it is not our will or decision that has brought us into Jesus, but because of your will that has drawn us to him. We give you glory and thanks for this. In the name of Jesus, Amen.